All right, while well, everybody is, uh, <clears throat> I, I saw a lot of people back there by the cookies and the candy and the cake a little while ago. So while there, you can tear yourself away from the sugar and the carbohydrates to get up here for the real food, the bread of life, then we'll be ready to go. All right. Well, a couple. Just a reminder on the donation. I mean, not on donations. Uh, just a reminder on the calendar. Next week is, as everybody should know, is Thanksgiving on Thursday. We never have a Bible class on Thanksgiving. Uh, that gives everybody an opportunity to spend that time with their family. And then also, uh, we've had people signing up for the Israel trip and for the. Uh, Washington, D.C. Museum of the Bible trip. I think they had a grand opening celebration today. I talked to Dan Ingram this morning, but haven't gotten a report. So he was there uh, today. And uh, this is really going to be um, quite, a th- quite a thing. We're going to do some other things as well, but we've had to wait until we get a little bit closer before we can talk to people, get some other things set up, and that will be that will be important. And I'll announce those once we get things uh, once we get things firmed up. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit, enjoying our fellowship, our relationship with the Lord, and if necessary, confess sin so that that continues. Uh, After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study, to reflect upon your word, to learn to have our souls fortified, edified, strengthened, that we can come to understand reality as it is, reality as you've defined it. And Father, I don't recall a time in my life when I have seen such a public display of millions of people of influence and power who are calling right wrong and wrong right and light darkness and darkness light. And Father, as we live in a culture that continues to implode due to postmodernism, due to rebellion against you and suppression of truth, we pray that we might not be discouraged, but we might look at this as an opportunity to witness for you, to be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and that we might respond by being more and more willing to be used by you to communicate the gospel, to talk to people who deep in their souls are unhappy, miserable, frustrated, angry, resentful, and we know that Jesus Christ is the only hope. He is the one who is the expression of your love for us, and we need to express that to others that they might understand it. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might be strengthened, encouraged as we Uh, See how your truths are reflected in this great hymn of praise written by King David. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started, while you're turning to Psalm 18, I thought I would read to you a card that came in the mail two or three weeks ago with a donation for the Harvey Fund from one of our uh, listeners, and it's addressed to me, of course, but it reads, this is not so much a donation as it is a thank you for making America proud again. You all, and I think that they are addressing Texans as well as West Houston Bible Church, you all reminded us what it looks like to be uncomplaining, self-sufficient, and caring. 
Our hearts break seeing the devastation, yet we know that if any group of people can stand up to such calamity, it's Texans. And we know that God knows that too. You're constantly in our prayer. Do let us know what specific needs you have. Our prayer team enjoys challenges. So that's a great note of encouragement for us. Well, I hope that you today had the opportunity to find uh, some time to read your Bible and to focus on the Lord and to just enjoy your walk with the Lord and your fellowship. That's what fellowship is. It's not just sort of being in a place of right relationship with God. It's enjoying that uh, relationship with him on a day-by-day basis, that in the midst of all the stuff that's going on, that we're just enjoying our time with the Lord. And we see this attitude reflected in this particular psalm. So we have worked our way through the first 19 verses. I've touched on verses 20, 21 a little bit at the end last time, which was uh, two weeks ago before I was uh, laid out with a 24-hour bug last Tuesday night. But it seems like there were at least five or six other people in the congregation who got laid out as well for that uh, 24-hour period. So it was something that was that was going along. What we're going to see in this next section as we get into this is how the faithful, the believers, praise the Lord. I use that word faithful specifically because... What we'll see when we get down to verse 25, and I don't know if we'll get much beyond that. I'm hoping we can get further. I just, I was cautiously optimistic and thought that in the title I would put 26, but that may need to be adjusted as it usually does. Um, In verse 25, if you have, I didn't check any other versions, but if you have a New King James, it says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. I think there are a few translations that also say with the faithful, and that is probably a better translation. We'll look at that uh, when we get there. So what we see here is a focus on believers, those who are faithful to the Lord, and they they praise the Lord for his faithfulness to those who are loyal to him. And this really covers the section from verse 20 down through verse 30. And then we see that there's a shift in the way the psalmist writes. He says, for who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? We just keep getting back to that rock theology in relationship to God. Just a reminder of the basic theme here is that this was written by David after he has learned that Saul has been killed, that the that the throne is now his, that his enemy has been removed by God finally, and he will uh, rise to the uh, throne of Israel. And so he is expressing his gratitude and his joy and his praise to God for delivering him through all of these very harsh circumstances that he's faced where he's been opposed and threatened by enemies over the last probably five to ten years, living as a wanderer in the deserts of Israel, uh, not knowing sometimes where the next meal would come. He's not alone. He's got as many as a thousand people with him that he has to take care of, but he's always being spied upon by his enemies those who are following Saul. So he uh, talks in the psalm about how God has delivered him, and he expresses that in some graphic uh, language, great imagery of God uh, moving in earthquakes and in storms to intervene in, in human history. So in these 10 verses, God is praised because he faithfully blesses those who are loyal to him. So one of the things that we're going to have to talk about is what does it mean that God blesses us? Because, and why does God bless us? And that's very much at the core of these next next 10 verses. When we come to verse 20, we read, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. And if you notice the way I 
uh, laid that out on the screen, we have a bit of a chiasm where the focal point of this uh, ABBA construction is that according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands are synonymous uh, are in synonymous parallelism, and that depicts the, the the focal point for the psalmist of this verse, where he what he wants us to think about is his righteousness and his cleanness, and then wrapping around that is this idea of reward and recompense, and so we see a doctrine of rewards even in the Old Testament. Now, part of the problem that a lot of people have when they come to a verse like this is that they think that we earn our salvation. And as I've said many times, salvation is free. Rewards are earned. And we're going to get a little summary of what, what rewards are as we go into this particular section. And then he says in the next verse, the basis for why he does this. The, the four at the beginning in English indicates an explanation and the Hebrew preposition that's used there functions basically the same way as as its counterpart, the gar, which you're more familiar with in Greek, and that is to explain why God rewards him, because he's kept the ways of the Lord and is not wickedly departed from my God. And we need to understand what that means, because there are some people who say, well, this couldn't be David talking. David is just such a such a rotten sinner. Well, at this point, his great sins had not yet been committed. They're still in the future. But he is a fallen creature like all of us. And he is corrupt and he is a sinner. And nevertheless, he is praised despite all of his failings, despite all of his sin. He's praised as a man after God's heart in contrast to Saul, who is considered a, a, a rebel, who is uh, following in the steps of, of basically witchcraft, following in the steps of Satan. And the difference is, I think, is that that last line in verse 21, David doesn't depart from God. Saul wasn't quite sure he was really loyal to God. But David is loyal to God, even though his sin nature got in the way a lot of times. It never caused him to turn away from God uh, conceptually. He was loyal to God, and when he did sin, he turned to God in confession. And confession, we know, brings cleansing. And that's really what we're seeing up here in verse 20, is not a focus on what we call sometimes positional righteousness, our righteous standing before God because we've trusted in Christ, we've been given his righteousness and declared justified, so we're positionally righteous. This is talking about experiential or practical righteousness. And it's that that is the result of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. When he says he's kept the ways of the Lord, there in verse 22, that is the idea of obedience to God in terms of obedience to Torah. And specifically, as we think about him and the opportunities that he had to kill Saul, uh, to relieve himself of the problem, taking matters into his own hands, he refused to do that. He didn't commit murder. He didn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He didn't adopt an injustifies the means mentality, which everybody else around him was uh, pushing him to do. And because he understood the truth, he lived on the basis of that truth. And he can say, I kept the law. I didn't violate God's ways. I didn't depart from the Lord. I did not uh, act in rebellion against God as as Saul did. The key words that we see here, I've highlighted in blue, rewarded, recompensed, and then that word for recompense shows up again in verse 24. And so that verses 20 to 24 really are a bracketing, an inclusio, as I pointed out in the past, that, that shows this as a whole section. But it shows a progression in thought. Uh, up here we have the two parallels, the first line, the last line, that the Lord has rewarded me, the Lord has recompensed me. And then in verse 24, after verses 21, 22, and 23, that assert his, that he is uh, uh, righteous, 
that he is clean, that he has kept the ways of the Lord, that he has focused on God's judgments and did not put away his statutes, that he's been blameless and kept from iniquity. After he says all of that, he concludes, Therefore, because I kept the law of the Lord, I was obedient to his word. Now, this isn't keeping the law in a legalistic sense because the law was the... Uh, the law was the standard for the life of the believer. That's the plan of God for the believer in Israel at that time. And he wasn't obeying the Lord in order to get God's blessing uh, in a self-righteous way. He's obeying the law, law because that's what he's supposed to do. And he has commanded in the law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Interesting word there for strength because it doesn't really say anything there. It's sort of a a word that means with all everything you've got. And that doesn't exclude human sinfulness. So he concludes by taking us back to the last thought in the verse 20 and saying, therefore the Lord has recompensed me, that echoes that last line, according to my righteousness. That picks up the line, the standard for the rewarding in, in the first uh, part of the verse, first stanza. And then he repeats, echoes the second according line in in verse 20 according to the cleanness of my hands that's just an echo of that that third actually it's the third stanza the third line and then he adds something new it's in his sight so this whole section really focuses even though he's talking about the fact that he's blameless it's it's holding up god and his character as the standard. It's not like those uh, those Jews during the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He's doing what's right in God's eyes, as God has revealed in the scripture. Unlike, and, and we see a parallel to that today. Probably made it, maybe I'll wait another four years and I'll teach judges again. If you haven't heard the Judges series I taught about 20 years ago, you ought to go back and listen to it because it's the heartbeat of where we are today. I've gone back and looked at my notes, and I think, did I write this last week? Not much has changed. It's like when I've gone back and I've read Francis Schaeffer from the late 60s and early 70s, I think, wow, he was incredibly prescient. He knew exactly where the culture was going. He understood the shift to postmodernism before just about anybody did, and he knew exactly where we were headed. He could have written what he wrote then. He could have written yesterday, and it's just as, just as timely. So the emphasis that we see here is on God rewarding the believer who has experiential righteousness. So that's verse 20. That's the focal point here. It's on reward and recompense. I want to look at those words in just a minute, but I need to remind us that what the Scripture teaches is that salvation is free, that when we're looking at this, even though we may think, oh, well, is this talking about salvation, that salvation is always free in the Bible. It is a free gift of God, but rewards are earned. And we go to Colossians three twenty-three and 24 for this, where Paul is bringing the epistle to the Colossians to a close, and he says, whatever you do, do it heartily, enthusiastically. You know, give it 150% as to the Lord and not to men. We're not doing it because it pleases people. You're not doing, you, you don't you do your job to please your boss. You don't do your job to, ble- to please your commanding officer. You're not doing your job to please a teacher or even your parents if you're kids. You're doing it as unto the Lord. Why? And it's a causal participle because you know that from the Lord, see, the fact that he's talking to them at all is a sign that they're already saved. But now you do everything as unto the Lord because you know you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, this isn't what some people may classify as Christian service, which is important in some ways, working in Sunday school or doing this or going on the mission field, serving the Lord in certain types of capacities. But all of that can be honestly and accurately 
and correctly viewed as serving the Lord, serving the Lord in, in the local church, uh, serving the Lord through prayer for people. I know there are people in this congregation and the extended congregation who get the prayer list as Sandy mails it out and it goes around and people faithfully pray for every single name, every single person on that prayer list every single week. And that is part of their function in the body of Christ. So that is the difference. This is a reward. So that's what we're talking about is reward. What's interesting is the words that are used here. The word translated reward in the first stanza is the Hebrew word gemal, which means to deal with something on the basis of what they've done. It's an economic term. It is an, a word used for exchange, that if you do this, then you get something specific in return. And it is the same idea of recompense. Now, the word translated recompense here is a, the, the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn or return something. So these are economic economic terms. If you don't know what it means to return things, then you haven't uh, really ever experienced an American Christmas. Uh, You exchange something for something else. You take it back and you get your money back, something like that. That, So these are economic terms. It always fascinates me that the terms that are used in the Bible to describe the transactions of salvation are these economic terms like, like redemption and expiation, which is the canceling of a debt. Uh, Other terms and images that are used, uh, forgiveness, afiemi is also used to cancel a debt. Charizomai is used of canceling a debt. So many of these terms, and so reward is also a financial economic term. David says the, the reason that God has rewarded him is because he's kept the ways of the Lord. Now, when we talk about rewards, when we talk about rewards and and recompense, what we see is that this is a way in which God is blessing us, and that can be either a blessing in time where God blesses us now, or it can be a, bless, a, a blessing in the future. Usually we think of that as our inheritance in the future. But the reason is I've kept the ways of the Lord. Now, the wrong way to think about this is that if I do X, Y, and Z, then God's going to give me A, B, and C. What we possess is righteous, imputed righteousness. So we already have that positionally. When we walk in obedience to the Lord, what that does in our soul is it it develops the soul. It develops our capacity for life, our our maturity, our responsibility, our ability to handle certain situations. A lot of times, uh, certain kinds of blessings can absolutely destroy people. You can take a look at the newspaper over the last three weeks from the... um, beginning of this whole horrid, uh, perverted Harvey Weinstein uh, debacle. And from the time that you start looking at that, you see people who become in just intensely, unimaginably wealthy. And they have absolutely imploded over the prosperity test. And they have used that prosperity to just feed their sin natures. And the more their sin natures are fed, the more they grow, and the more it gets ugly and just begins to to impact everybody around them in horrible, horrible ways. And so they they were given certain material things, and it destroyed them eventually. But you look at a believer who's walking with the Lord that builds him up, and then the Lord distributes those blessings when they've demonstrated the maturity and the capacity to handle them so that they're not self-destructive. It's like someone who is very wealthy, loves cars, has a uh, Lamborghini or a Ferrari, and buys one a classic car for their six-year-old son. 
But he doesn't give the keys to the six-year-old son. He says, I'm going to wait until you've demonstrated the capacity to handle this before I give you the keys. And once you've done that, you may be 20, 25, or 30, then the car will be yours. It's yours now, but I'm not going to let you use it until then. When I was in the third grade, I discovered my dad had a Marine Corps K-Bar knife that um, he had had on Iwo Jima. And I really liked that. And he said, well, you can have it when back in those days, if you looked at your report card, on one side you would have certain academic subjects. You would have arithmetic and language arts, and you would have geography and uh, literature, whatever whatever they, they had. And you would get a letter grade, A through D, and then F if you failed. On the other side of the report card, there were various character traits and qualities. You had citizenship, you had self-discipline, you had things like patience and cooperation with others, and you would be graded on a scale of check. Check was average, plus was you excelled, and minus was you had a lot of work to do. And my dad said, you get a plus three three six-week grading periods in a row, then you'll get that knife. Third grade went by, fourth grade went by, fifth grade went by, sixth grade went by. Because most teachers started you with a check, and unless you were exceptional, you didn't get a plus. So they didn't start high and work your way down. When I got into the seventh grade, I made straight E's in, in conduct, which was excellent. And so that qualified because you started with an E and you had to do bad things to, to degrade that E. So it took me until I was in the seventh grade before I, I hit it, and then my dad gave me that knife, which I kept for, uh, for many years. Unfortunately, there was a trunk I had of many things uh, that was stolen out of a storage locker, and that was in there. But um, that's the idea, is that God distributes these blessings to us when we have the capacity to appreciate them and to use them without destroying uh, our, our lives, our spiritual lives. Now, a lot of what we see here in Psalm 18 is an echo of what David wrote in Psalm 15. If you remember in that psalm, uh, it's not tied to any geographical, I mean, any historical situation. It's just titled a Psalm of David, but it focuses on fellowship with God in his tabernacle. The tabernacle is a word uh, that uh, in the Hebrew, it's mishkan. M, the, the consonants are M, which makes a verb, a participle. S-H-K-N, those four letters. The three root letters are S-H-K-N, shakan. Now, that's where we get the, another form of the word is Shekinah. You hear the consonants, S-H-K-N. It means to dwell somewhere. So a tabernacle is a mishkan. It's a dwelling place. So that was the place where God dwelt among the tribes of Israel, and that is where they worshiped him. So David begins this psalm, Psalm 15, with two questions. He says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? See, what he's asking there is a question not of eternal salvation. He's asking a question about fellowship. Who can abide in your dwelling place? Who may dwell in your holy hill, the location of the tabernacle? And then he answers it in verse 2. He says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. See, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the person who is living according to Torah. The person who is obeying the word. And, and when I ended the last lesson, I talked about the one who meditates on God's word day and night, the contrast between the godly and the ungodly in, in Psalm 1. And so this is what is, this echoes these ideas that we find in Psalm 18, where David is talking about his fellowship with God. And it, fellowship is, I've said this many times, Fellowship isn't a static thing. You don't confess sin and, oh, I'm in fellowship. 
Fellowship is something you enjoy with someone. It is something active. The word koinonia also means participation. Okay, that is when when you are have a friendship with somebody, you participate in things together. You talk about things together. You enjoy life together. You encourage each other. That's what biblical fellowship is, whether it's with men or with God. It is enjoying life with God and enjoying God in your life as you go through your life. And it's based upon the person who is walking in obedience to God. Now we fail. And when we fail, we have a problem. Because Psalm sixty-six, eighteen says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now I'm always amazed by people I hear that say, well, this idea that you can sin and, and you're not in fellowship with God, that, that, that just doesn't that that just can't be right. See, they fail to understand the difference between positional truth and experiential truth. We're talking about experiential truth here, that it's just like your position in a family is secured by your DNA and your birth in that family. You're legally the son or daughter of your parents. That's your family. But there are times when you're going to do things and and disobey your parents and you're not your your parents are going to say you're not acting like a member of this family you're acting like a member of another family and you need to make things right that is the idea of confession of sin it it is in a sense reminding god that christ died for these sins i committed these sins and then god instantly forgives us and cleanses us and that rapport that enjoyment of God in our life continues. But Psalm 66, 18 says that if you are focused on sin, you have sin in your life, in your mind, then the Lord won't hear. It's amazing. I don't know if you remember, but there was a Southern Baptist pastor. I think it was out of Oklahoma City. I think his name was Jimmy something or other back in the late 70s or early 80s. He said, God doesn't hear the prayers of Jews. And everybody made a big deal about that, and they acted as if it was something anti-Semitic. The reality is, according to Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, the Jews said, God doesn't hear the prayers of, of sinners who haven't been cleansed of sin. This is a Jewish idea. It came out of Psalms. It, it's not something that some... some um, Oklahoma Baptist pastor made up, it, God made it up, that he's not going to listen to prayers if you come with an unclean heart and if you haven't confessed sin. So this is what David is talking about. He's walking in fellowship with God. He sinned. He would confess. And in verse 21, he has laid down the basis for his blessing and then he expands on that in verse 22. He says, for all his judgments were before me. So what's the basis for David's enjoying fellowship with God? It's his knowledge of God's word. It's his orientation to God's word, what we call under the spiritual skills doctrinal orientation. He knew God's judgments. He knows what's revealed in his word. He says, all God's judgments are before me. I know them. He'd memorize them. And I did not put away his statutes from me. In other words, he didn't turn his back on God's word as so many people do today. They always seem to find something more important than to have their fanny in a seat in Bible class. Life's so busy. Uh, this last week, I mentioned it Sunday morning, I went to the funeral of my mother's best friend, and it was just tremendous to hear her grandchildren talk about her. And of course, I've known her my my whole life. And it was it was interesting to think about the things that were said about her and how she, like some people we know who have recently gone to be with the Lord in this congregation, just had such a focus on the Lord's things, on the Word. They would ask people whenever she'd see somebody, well, what are you reading in Scripture? Or she, if they weren't a believer and she did, or she didn't know, she'd say, has anybody told you about the fact that Jesus loves you and that he died for you? I mean, just... Her whole focus was that way. She never turned away from it. You know, no matter what it was, no matter how old she got, no matter how difficult it was, 
she was going to be at church and at Bible class and at Bible study because that was the priority. We see so many people today that they're just too busy. But the reality is that when we come to the end of our life, the only thing that matters is going to be our relationship with the Lord. I have yet to have heard anybody say as they've come to the end of their life, I wish I worked an extra five hours a week. I wish I'd gone back to school and gotten another degree or two. I wish I'd spent less time with my kids and my wife or my husband. You know, you never hear anybody say that. Uh, they say, I wish I'd spent more time with my family, or I wish I'd spent more time with my husband or with my wife. I wish I'd spent more time enjoying life instead of constantly in the pursuit of gain or in the pursuit of recognition or in the pursuit of advancement. Not that there's something wrong with that, but that when that gets out of kilter with your relationship with the Lord, then you're out of kilter from top to bottom. Because you're, if, if you can't do what you think you want to do in life and keep your relationship with the Lord stable, then you're pursuing the wrong goals in life. You're beyond your capacity. And that happens with a lot of people. They, 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 they have a great brain. They have great capacity. They get involved in jobs that overload them time-wise. And what happens is they can't keep their relationship with the Lord right. So what's happened is you've let yourself get promoted into a position that destroys your spiritual life. I see it happen again and again and again. And it usually happens to 30-somethings and 40-somethings. And by the time they get to be 50-somethings, they wonder what happened. So David's not like this. No matter what the pressure's been from Saul, he hasn't left God's statutes. He says, I was also blameless before him. And this has the idea of maturity, not perfection, not sinlessness, but maturity. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Again, this is not talking about a situation that is uh, that he's, has sinlessness. It's fellowship. Now, these ideas are echoed in the New Testament with similar language. For example, in James chapter 4, verse 8, James is addressing a Jewish background believers, a, a congregation of Jewish background believers, and he tells them, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Notice the language that's there. Here's the Greek word. It's the panel on the left, in gizo, and it means to bring near. It describes a close physical proximity in space, you know, either closeness in space or closeness in time. It emphasizes a closeness of relationship. How do you draw near to God and have a close intimate relationship with him. And he's saying it puts your drawing near to God first, and then God will draw near to you. Because we're the ones who moved. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, they're the ones who sinned and got, ev got evacuated, uh, not evacuated, but got kicked out, excommunicated from the garden. And so then what they have to do is be cleansed so that they can come back and draw near to God. This involves cleansing. This is metaphorical language here. Cleanse your hands. Hands depict what we do. It depicts power, the hand of God, the arm of God. This depicts what God can do, his omnipotence, his power. So cleansing your hands has to do with sin in terms of what we've done. Cleanse your hands, you sinners and purify your hearts. Hearts represent your mind, your mental attitude. Cleanse, the word for cleanse over here on the right is the Greek word katharizo. The word for pure, purify down below is agnizo. Both are aorist active imperatives, and aorist imperative is emphasizing a priority in life. This is a priority to be cleansed. The end result isn't to be cleansed, the end result is to draw near to God, to have and enjoy that relationship with God. This is echoed in another sense 
in Hebrews 10.22. Now, what we have here is he's talking to believers about the fact that you get out of fellowship, you commit sin, you break that rapport with God, and you have to recover by cleansing and purification. That's phase two sanctification. Hebrews 10.22 is going to use that language a little differently. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, that's phase two. That is talking about the same thing as draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And then it says, having our hearts sprinkled. Well, this is taking us back in time. Because we've had our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, that happened at salvation, and our bodies washed. And this is the word luo, which means to wash completely or to bathe. Now, some of you may or may not remember this, but I've taught this a number of times in John 13, when Jesus comes to Peter and he's washing the disciples' feet. Peter says, no, I don't want you to wash my feet. The word there for washing is a different word. It's not luo, it's nipto, meaning a partial washing, like you'd wash your hands or wash your feet. That's nipto. Then Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to do this. And then, then the Lord says, goes on, and he says that everyone there has been completely bathed, but you have to be partially washed. The word for completely bathed is lua. So he's playing off the difference between nipto, a partial washing, on those who have already been completely washed. Well, another place you have those two words used is in Exodus chapter 40. When the high priest is, is initiated into the high priesthood, he's bathed, ceremonially bathed from head to toe, which pictures the complete washing from sin that we have at the instant of salvation. And then every time the high priest enters into the tabernacle or the temple, he has to wash his hands and wash his feet. Nipto. That's the background for understanding what Jesus is doing in John 13. Well, here we have that word luo, and and the writer of Hebrews is basically saying our bodies were washed luo with pure water. He's using that same imagery to talk about the fact we have been saved in the past. So now we have to draw near to God. We have to uh, draw near with a, full, with a true heart in a full assurance of faith. So what happens at salvation is in terms of the righteousness of God. I think it's very interesting that in Genesis fifteen six the issue is Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told about Noah, but in 2 Peter 2, 5, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We don't have this term, the gospel. The focus is on righteousness. When we get to Isaiah, Isaiah also focuses on righteousness. He says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and he says that, that, that the suffering Messiah in Isaiah 53 came to give us righteousness. So righteousness is the real issue in salvation. Do you have it or not? So we have positional righteousness. So we're born without righteousness. At the cross, where Christ was perfectly righteous, we're told that he became sin. All of Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So there's nothing on our part that is pleasing to God that Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is made sin so that what happens is our unrighteousness, our sin is imputed to him on the cross, and then when we believe in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. That is our positional righteousness. That is who we are in Christ, and we can't ever lose that. But what happens is when we sin, we splatter a little mud on that righteous white robe and confession is what cleanses it. And if there's mud on the robe, then we can't enjoy our relationship with God. So there has to be that that cleansing that takes place. All blessing that comes from God comes because we possess Christ's righteousness. It doesn't really come because we did something right. By obeying the Lord, we develop our capacity, but the basis for God's blessing 
is that we have his righteousness. So with that, what I want to do is to just summarize five basic things that we as church-age believers need to know about rewards, okay? So first of all, it's what I said earlier, great little line to remember, salvation is free, rewards are earned. Now these are some good verses to memorize and to make sure you understand them. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, I already mentioned that we will receive the reward of the inheritance for our service. That's not salvation. That's in addition to that. Salvation is described in Romans 5, 15 as the free gift that comes to us by grace. Romans 5, 17 says it's the gift of righteousness. It's a free gift. gift. A gift is something we don't earn or deserve. It's something freely given to us. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, I've got a parenthesis in there because people ask me this every now and then. Calvinists have distorted this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that. What is the that referred to? Well, grace and faith are feminine nouns, and the that is a neuter noun. So the that doesn't refer back to, it's got to refer to a neuter noun unless it's referring to a compound subject, more than one thing. So if you go back to Ephesians 2.5, which I'm not going to go back to, it, init- it introduces the phrase, for by grace you have been saved. And that's what the, the, the that is, that, that is that by grace through faith salvation, that not of yourselves, it, that is that by grace through faith salvation is the gift of God. It's not grace that's the gift of God. It's not faith that's the gift of God. It's not salvation that's the gift of God. It is that by grace through faith salvation it's the compound subject that is the gift of god it is that by grace through faith salvation that is the gift of god it's the whole package that is the gift of god we don't earn it or deserve it the verse goes on to say in 29 it's not of works lest any man should boast So salvation is free and rewards are earned. The second thing we learn is that salvation is based on faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross. But rewards are based on our spiritual growth by the Holy Spirit. That is based on our volition. Are we going to walk by the Spirit or walk according to the sin nature? The time that we are walking, enjoying our fellowship with God, walking by the Spirit, obeying Him then that is rewardable. Now, we can do the same things. You can pray out of fellowship. You can memorize scripture out of fellowship. You can witness out of fellowship. But it's all motivated by the sin nature. I've even known of cases where you had pastors who were in the pulpit for 5, 10, 15 years. One day they actually read the text in the scripture and went, I don't think I've ever trusted Christ as my Savior. And they get saved after 10, 15 years of being a pastor. That happened a lot in the first great awakening in this country. It was remarkable. So just because somebody's in a church, grew up in church, taught the Bible in church, doesn't mean they're saved unless they clearly make it, make it clear that they've trusted in Christ as Savior. So when we walk by the Spirit in fellowship then God gives us rewards for our obedience. And those rewards, on the third point, some rewards and blessings occur in this life and others occur in the next life. There are blessings for time, blessings for eternity. Now, people get all confused about blessing. We, in our culture, think of blessing in terms of material benefits. But if you're living in a Stone Age culture in Irian Jaya somewhere, you're not going to interpret blessing in terms of anything physical or material. You've got a totally different worldview. If you're in India, you're going to have a different idea of, of this. And, some, and often our cultural ideas of blessing are wrong. They're, they're not right. Uh, often... Um, 
the blessing that God gives you might be providing you with a local church where you can learn the word of God, where you can serve the Lord, where you can grow to spiritual maturity, and the trappings of what the world considers to be successful are not there. But God's given you what you need in order to grow to spiritual maturity. Sometimes today it's getting harder and harder to find that locally where you are, and you have to get on the Internet and go through a distance pastor. I've often complained about that because people lose touch with other believers. But the more I hear from people and the more I witness this culture, I know it's a reality in many parts of this country that you are not going to have anyone around you that is a believer. There is a, there's a family, I won't mention who they are or where they are, but it's a pretty remote area. And not that there aren't people around, but in talking with them a little bit, communicating with them a little bit, they are probably, they think they are probably the only genuine believers around, that their kids are the only kids in their schools that understand the gospel, and that they are extremely isolated in terms of their Christianity. And there's no such thing as anything that you or I would consider a Protestant church. There's a clue there, a Protestant church within several hundred miles, okay? Thank God we have the internet and live streaming and all of these things to provide spiritual nourishment and distance fellowship for people like that, and that is a great need. But God blesses us in many other ways. He blesses us with family. He blesses us with friends. He blesses us with health. He blesses us with education and capacity for life and to enjoy life, maybe to enjoy it uh, pretty much alone. But we're satisfied because of our close relationship with the Lord. Blessing is not necessarily quantifiable in empirical terms. There are temporal blessings that are ours now, and there are going to be eternal blessings that are given at the judgment seat of Christ, and we can't even imagine what those are going to be like. And God is going to give them to us based on his grace. And even though we have uh, served the Lord and we have worked, and in some cases we failed and we haven't, God's going to treat all of us in grace at the judgment seat of Christ. Fourth point, the rewards are related to inheritance. There's two kinds of inheritance, that which is for all believers and that which is for obedient, spiritually growing believers, also known as disciples. Disciples are those who are willing to leave their mother, their father, their children, their brothers, their sisters to follow the Lord. They're willing to put their relationship with the Lord, their spiritual growth, their role in a body of believers, and that fellowship within that body of believers above all other entanglements in this life. Parents, children, employers, employees, jobs, whatever it may be. Hebrews 6.12 is a warning that we do not become sluggish. Don't take your spiritual life for granted. But imitate those, talking about Old Testament faith heroes, imitate those who through faith and mockrothemia, not endurance, but patience, long-suffering, inherit the promises. That's that a special kind of inheritance for growing, maturing believers. Now, I've often used this as a... Um, as a little way to understand a, an important verse in Romans. This is in Romans chapter 8, and I've used this a few times. I learned this a long time ago. Every now and then people give me other sentences, and I, unfortunately I haven't written down. But this is in, um, if you look at Romans chapter 8, and this is in verse um, 17. 16 reads, The Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that we are children of God. And if children, and the way it's punctuated, it reads, If children, comma, then heirs, M dash, 
heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ as if those are the same thing. We know that how, there's no punctuation in the original, and how you punctuate a sentence is really important. Here's our sentence. A woman without her man is nothing. If you punctuate it this way, a woman, comma, without her, comma, man is nothing. A sentence that emphasizes man's dependence upon a woman for life. Okay? On the other hand, if you punctuate it this way, a woman without her man is nothing. You're saying just the opposite. It all depends on where you put the punctuation. Well, in this verse, in Romans 8.17, where it talks about if children then heirs, it should read heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, because joint heirship is conditioned upon suffering with him. That's what we're talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 on Thursday nights, is suffering with Christ. That's the path to reward. That doesn't mean you're going out and being martyred, but that means as you stand and have a clean conscience, which is what Peter is emphasizing, and do the right thing and people ridicule you or people turn their back on you or people uh, don't want to have anything to do with you or people persecute you, that, that that is suffering with Christ. It may not be big, it may just be something that's small. It may be just an irritant. It may be that people you think you want to have friendships with don't want to have friendships with you because you're one of those people who gets up in the morning and reads their Bible. You're somebody who, when they take a lunch break, they go off by themselves and brown bag it and sit there and read their Bible. And we saw you pray one day. So, you know, somebody that's over you said, no, we don't want that kind of a person in that management role. You may not even know that. You just know you haven't gotten promoted. That's suffering with the Lord. There's all kinds of ways in which we may suffer for the Lord in this life that, that we may not be aware of. And then there's the more obvious, overt ways of uh, a persecution. So... Fifth point, rewards for eternity are distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, in a great passage, you ought to memorize the whole first 11 verses. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, whether according to what he has done, whether good, that is, that which has spiritual value, or that which is the Greek word there indicates that which just isn't productive. It's not necessarily evil, but it's the idea of just not productive. It's, it's a choice between that which has eternal value and that which just doesn't. may not be bad, may not be sinful, but it just doesn't produce anything for eternity. So Colossians 3.12, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3.12 says, If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. It's a picture of building a, an edifice. The foundation is Christ. That's in the previous verse. And your life is what's being built. When you're walking by the Spirit, what you're, what's being produced is gold, silver, and precious stones. What's being produced by your sin nature is wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear at the judgment seat of Christ. You can't evaluate your own life now, much less anybody else's life. But at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be declared, it will be made manifest, it will be revealed by fire. Fire will destroy the wood, hay, and straw. So the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ isn't to expose your failures, it's to expose your successes. And the rewards are based on our successes. Fire will test each one's work of what kind it is. And it says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, it may be just a teaspoon of gold. There'll be a reward for that. It may be more than that. It may be a couple of cups, maybe a pint, maybe a pound. And you'll receive a reward. But if there's not even a micro dot then you'll suffer loss. A loss of what? A loss of reward, not a loss of salvation because it goes on to say, but he himself will be saved yet is through fire. So there are going to be a lot of believers who get to the judgment seat of Christ and then they go into heaven, but they've lost rewards. They just don't have any rewards. 
because they never grew, they never matured. They lived a life that was not distinguish, distinguishable from that of an unbeliever. Well, I'm going to stop there, and we're going to come back next time to finish up with this section in, uh, in Psalm 18, uh, going on talking about God's blessing those who are righteous, that is, experientially righteous. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study, to be reminded of these truths, that they were very much, they were different in the Old Testament, but very similar. And we can learn from that and be encouraged from it, that that uh, David, even though he sinned, at times he sinned greatly, he, he confessed his sin, he's forgiven, and he is still spoken of as a man after your heart. He loved you with all of his being, and he kept your law. That doesn't mean he was perfect, and he always kept it. It just means that that was his heart's intent, that was his goal, and he loved you. Father, may we emulate the positive there. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.